the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses has been recounting to Israel how amazing and faithful God had been to the children of Israel. God had brought them through the desert wilderness and was preparing them to enter into the land promised them. Moses had told them about their past failures, not trusting God's word and being rebellious to his commands. But God was faithful and gave them victory over the Amalekites. We continue looking at God's past faithfulness as we join Pastor Will in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, the whole theme of Deuteronomy is loving God supremely. We're learning how to do that, and it starts by understanding how much God loves us. We studied that this morning when we were in Luke, where we, we love him because he first loved us, right? First John chapter 4. For Israel to love God supremely, they must understand how God has loved them, by how he's been faithful to them, and how he's been gracious to them. And so Moses has spent the last two chapters reminding them of all God did to bring them to this point, recounting their history. Chapter 3 continues that history lesson by focusing on the magnificent things that God had done in their recent past. And those recent miracles meant that the Lord would surely do even greater things once they crossed over that Jordan River and entered into Canaan. And so as we study God's continued faithfulness to Israel, may we know that he still wants to do magnificent things in our lives as well. So chapter 3, verse 1. The end of context is chapter 2 is after they defeated King Sihon, the Amorite king. And then verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Then we turned and we went up the way to Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edre. And the Lord said unto me, Fear him not. For I will deliver him and all his people and his land into your hand. And you shall do unto him as you did unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. So the Lord our God delivered into our hands Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people. And we smote him until none was left to him remaining. Bashan is the Golan Heights. That's probably the name you are used to hearing it by in the news and such. And of course, it's very controversial because, you know, the UN says that's not Israeli territory. Of course, Israeli soldiers are there. It's Israeli territory. And the reason it's controversial is because Syria, prior to their invasion of Israel, controlled that land. And with that, those heights, you have you can launch artillery right into Israel. They would have snipers posted up there and they would shoot at anyone who came near the Sea of Galilee. Even though they're in the land of Israel, they would shoot at them from there. Israel now controls that area. Their people in the Galilee region are very safe. But that's the area that we're referring to here, stretching all the way from Mount Hermon in the north to the Jabbok River in the south. This kingdom of Bashan by King Og, it was a massive kingdom led by a massive king with a massive army. And Israel had never encountered anything like this before and it made them afraid. So the Lord said unto me, Moses, he says, fear him not. Now that's interesting. Fear not Bashan or their army, but it says fear him, King Og. Don't fear him. Now why would they fear him? Well, because they'd never encountered somebody like this before. 
Anytime you see in the Bible when it says fear not, God's telling somebody to not be afraid, it's because they're terrified. And, and the reason you need to stop being afraid is because the Lord says, you shall do unto him as you did unto Sihon, king of the Amorites, which dwelt at Heshbon. This guy Og may be massive. He may look bigger than Sihon, but the difficulty is the same for me is what the Lord says. And do you realize that there are no difficulty levels with God? You know, like heaven doesn't go and lower the DEFCON status when certain things happen. Do you realize that everything is easy mode for God? Like I was one of those kids, like I never did anything on easy mode. If we were playing a video game or we were doing something, I never did on easy mode. I always wanted to tackle the hardest mode. I was just very competitive and very stubborn. And I just never did anything easy mode. Everything is easy mode for God, though. Nothing is a challenge for him. You know, he doesn't have to crack his knuckles. He doesn't have to pull up his big boy pants, okay? God doesn't have to do any of those things. We can trust him with our own giants, our own impossible situations, because he'll do the same thing for us that he did for Israel. And so Moses tells them, so the Lord our God, verse 3, delivered into our hands Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people, his whole army, and we smote him until there was none left to him remaining. We took all his cities at that time. There was not a city which we took not from them. Three score, which means 60 cities, all the region of Argob, the kingdom of Og in Bashan, we took it all. And all those cities, they were fenced with high walls. These were, you know, well-fortified cities. They had gates and bars beside unwalled towns, a great many. And we utterly destroyed them as we did unto Sihon, king of Heshbon, utterly destroying the men, the women, the children of every city. But all the cattle and the spoil of the cattle we took for a prey to ourselves. And we took at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, the land that was on this side of Jordan, from the river of Arnon unto Mount Hermon which Hormon, he, he's reminding them, the Sidonians call it Syrian, and the Amorites call it Shinir, but in Israel it's called, they call it Hermon. All the cities of the plain, and all Gilead, and all Bashan, and Salca, and Edre, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. We took it all, he says. For only Og, king of Bashan, remained of the remnants of giants. Behold, his bedstead was a bedstead of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the children of Ammon? Nine cubits was the length thereof and four cubits the breadth thereof after the cubit of a man. Now, the reason I read through most of that is because we've been covering this formula and I don't want to really get into the idea of wiping everyone out, women and children included, because I've spent already two Sundays talking about that. So we're going to just kind of read through that tonight. If you want to find out more, you can get the CD from last week or catch it online or on the, the church app. Any of those places will have it. But the idea here is that the focus is on this big guy, this big guy that they defeated. One really scary guy can look very menacing, but it was just one giant. It says that he was the last remnant of the giants. The word in the Hebrew is Rephaim. And that was a, a name for a people group that was a giant people group. He was just one giant. We must never forget that the biggest guy is the one who's sending us against that giant. The biggest guy in the room is the one who's sending us against the giant we're facing. And he promises to never leave us or forsake us. This guy, it mentions how big he was. It says that his bed was nine cubits. And cubit measurements are different based on who's doing the measuring. But that means it was probably about 14 feet long. And thus was invented the first king-sized bed. What I think is funny is it says, is it not in Rabbah of the children of Ammon? In other words, the Ammonites kept his bed in a museum in their capital city. Now, how did they get it? They didn't defeat this guy. The Israel defeated this guy. So they must have asked the Israelites for it. They're on peaceful terms with Israel at this point in time. They asked him for the guy's bed. Now, we can't know for sure why, but I don't think it speaks highly of the guy. You know, I don't think it's, it's because, oh, we loved Og. Look, can you send us his bed, please? My guess is he must have been a real thorn in the Ammonite side. And they thought, yeah, 
yeah, send us that dude's bed so we can look at it every day and know he's not in it anymore. That must have meant this guy was a bully. But this guy, odd, he's got some interesting things about him throughout history that people have said about him. And this, someone wrote a forgery around the second century AD that's supposed to be his letter back to Moses after Moses, you know, he knows that uh, they're coming to attack, Israel's coming to attack, and he sends this letter to Moses. And he tells him how he's going to eat his children and do all sorts of stuff. I'm like a god, I'm a giant. And yet here's this guy's beds just sitting in a museum. He's nothing but a bully. And, you know, maybe the enemy's been bullying you around lately. Fear not. The lion of the tribe of Judah fights for you, and in the end, you will be victorious too. Amen? Moses reminds them of this event, even though it had just occurred, just in the last year, because they're not going to face just one giant in Canaan. They're going to face a whole load of them. And they needed to be reminded that one giant king was the same as one regular-sized king to God, which means that a bunch of giants were the same as one giant to God as well. And therefore, the Lord who fought for them, he would handle them too. And that's a great reminder for us that God handles difficult situations just as easily as he handles everything else in our life. It's all easy mode for him. So, you know, whatever you're facing right now, forget the things that God's done to get you this far. I think so often, maybe you don't do that. I do that. You know, God brings me through a crisis and you kind of take that breath of, you know, sigh of relief. You're like, okay, we're good. Everything's good. Everything's calm. Everything's solid. Everything's moving forward. And then all of a sudden, you know, this big, huge boulder comes running down the road at you and you're like, ah, I'm the only person who does that. And we forget that there's a boulder rolling behind, or actually it's not a boulder anymore. It's been smashed into bits by the Lord on the roadside. Don't forget how far the Lord's brought you and what he had to do to get you there. He's gotten you this far. He's not going to leave you now. The obstacles you've been facing are the same difficulty in front of you as your past obstacles to God. He overcame them and he'll overcome these. Israel needed to know that. Verse 12, referring to this land. Now, this includes the land from chapter 2, so not just the land controlled by Og, Bashan, but the land controlled by Sihon as well. This land, which we possessed at that time, from Eroer, which is by the river Arnon, and half Mount Gilead, and the cities thereof, I gave unto the Reubenites and to the Gadites. Now, you remember the story was they actually approached Moses and said, hey, Moses, uh, we got a proposition for you. We got a ton of cattle, and this land is really good for cattle. We don't want to go over the Jordan, and we don't want to settle land over there. We want to settle here. And Moses starts pulling his hair out, and he's going, come on! The whole reason why it took 38 years for us to get here is because your forefathers didn't want to go to the promised land. We're not doing this again. They said, no, time out, Moses. We're happy to go to the promised land and defeat the enemies there. We just want to settle down in this land that we've already conquered here. And so Moses is reminding them of that. You know, he had given this land to them. It mentions from Eroer, which is by the river Arnon. That's the northern border of Moab. And then half of Mount Gilead. Now, Mount Gilead, Mount there just means the hill country. And that whole area is just highland. You've got the Dead Sea, like smack dab in the, in the southern region. And then you've got the Sea of Galilee up here. In the middle is the Jordan River Valley. And it's all very low. It's right down at the same level as the Dead Sea. It's the lowest place in the earth. And so... everything around there rises up. Everything goes out of that bowl goes up on both sides of the river. So they're on the east side of the river. You know, we're up in the highlands is Bashan, but then you come down into the lowlands where they're camped right now. So the hilly area of Gilead is all that southern part of Bashan. And he says, so I gave that whole region to the Reubenites and to the Gadites. They controlled the southern area. Verse 13, and the rest of Gilead, so the northern part of all Bashan, 
Being the kingdom of Og, I gave unto the half-tribe of Manasseh. They were a very large tribe. All the region of uh, Argob, which was a very fertile area for cattle, unto the coasts of Geshuri and Meacathai. Again, these are just all very fertile regions that you know, were well known for cattle. I gave it unto the half-tribe Manasseh, verse 13, all the region of Argob with Albashan, which is called the land of giants. Now, you can't read that was the land of giants without talking about it. That area is currently under the control of Jordan, the country of Jordan, so they don't allow archaeologists to dig in that region. But the place, when you look at it from like, they have drones that go over there sometimes and take pictures, it's full of massive stone dolmens. This is all called the land of giants. It's filled with massive stone dolmens. And those are burial chambers. They're usually like probably rocks the size of this wall, three or four of them. And then they have another one on top of those rocks. And then inside they'll have inscriptions and things like that that show you who is buried there and whatnot. These stones sometimes are over 50 tons, including the roofs. Even though we can't go over to Jordan and do archaeological digs over there, Israel does control the Golan Heights now. And there is a famous circle of stones there called Gilgal Rephaim. And this is called the Stonehenge of the Middle East. Gilgal Rephaim means wheel of giants. And it is. It's a cultic pagan worship center that these guys had built. And it's there in Bashan. It's massive. It's over 40,000 stones, some over eight feet tall. They're just huge. During the sunrise on the winter and summer solstices, the sun lines up directly with the cracks in the rocks. And that makes this a common pilgrimage place for modern day pagans. They're the only people who go over there. We're not going to go there and be like, oh, let's have a, like, like have a Bible study there. No, there's, there's nothing spiritual about it that's good. It's a pagan worship center. So a lot of times the modern day pagans will go over there and they'll celebrate during the winter and the summer solstice. To this day, they have no clue how they built these things. One researcher estimated it would have taken 25,000 days to construct that thing. But they have no clue still how they got the stones on top of these other massive stones because they didn't have the ability to lift things like that back then. Well, I imagine it would have been a lot easier if giants were doing the lifting. (laughs) And so the land of giants, it's interesting to see it has giant buildings there. It's funny, those are all made with basalt, which is volcanic rock. There's a volcano in the region there. And it's just, it's incredibly heavy material. Nobody would build with that. Nobody built with wood over there either. They built things to last because they could. They call it the land of sacred romance, which is kind of disgusting because remember in Genesis chapter 6 where it says the sons of God slept with daughters of Seth? The ancient pagan name for this is because that's where they believe that the angels copulated with human women and the giants were born. So I, you know, I would not call that a romance, but whatever. Verse 14 begins to describe some of the exploits that happened when they took this land. It says, Jair, the son of Manasseh, took all the country of Argob unto the coast of Geshuri and Meacathai. And these are the regions that are directly east of the Sea of Galilee. And they called them after his own name, Bashan Havath Jair, which basically means Jair's tent village in Bashan. So they hadn't really built the whole place up yet into actual buildings. They just had a tent city there at this point in time. Now, why are these guys mentioned? Verse 15, I gave Gilead unto Machir. Uh, These guys are mentioned because later on in the book of Judges, their descendants will do some important things. Their descendants became influential people. God is simply singling them out here as people of impact. I don't want my name to be in light so everybody, you know, says, oh, Will did something great for God. I don't, I don't want like my name to get glory, but I do want to make an impact by being a man of great faith. I do want my life to count for something. I don't want my life to be meaningless. Joshua and the rest of Israel were going to need men and women of great faith if they were going to conquer Canaan. And if we're going to do the task that God sets in front of us, we need to be men and women of great faith too. 
Let's be those who trust God for what he's called us to do, like these guys. If he calls us to do it, then he's already given us the ground that we're going to go take. We just need to trust him. The only thing that can keep us from it is if we refuse to believe or we refuse to obey. These guys have it on record here that they were faithful and they took the land God gave to them. And I would ask you, are you refusing to to trust God or to obey God in any era of your life right now? Let that not be your testimony. Let your testimony be like these guys. So verse 16, it includes another region here for the boundaries. It says, and unto the Reubenites and unto the Gadites, I gave from Gilead unto the river Arnon half the valley. So now they're going into the non-fertile ground, the deserty area where they're camped now. He says, I gave them to those two tribes half that and the border even unto the river Jabbok, which is the border of the children of Ammon. The plain also in Jordan and the coast thereof from Kinnereth, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee, even unto the Sea of the Plain, even the Salt Sea, that's the Dead Sea. So that whole region, that desert valley region from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Dead Sea, he says, I gave it to him under Ashdod Pisgah eastward. And Pisgah, the Ashdod Pisgah just means the mountain slopes of Pisgah. This is where Israel spied in the Amorites uh, when they first crossed the Arnon River out of Moab. And Numbers already covers all that information, so I'm not going to go over it again. You might be saying, well, this is a little laborious. Why is Moses reminding them of it? Well, remember, these two guys, these two and a half tribes, all their people, they've already built cities for themselves in all this land. But guess where they are? They're still with the army. Why are they still with the army? Well, verse 18. And I commanded you at that time, saying, the Lord your God has given you this land to possess it. You shall pass over armed before your brethren. So these are the two and a half tribes. You're going to pass over armed in front of your brethren, the children of Israel, all that are worthy for the war. But your wives and your little ones and your cattle, for I know you have much cattle, that's why you asked for this land, shall abide in your cities, which I have given to you, until the Lord has given rest unto your brethren, as well as unto you. And until they possess the land, which the Lord your God has given them beyond, on the other side, Jordan. And then you shall return every man to his possession, which I have given you. I love this because he's beginning to set the tone for the rest of Deuteronomy, which is God's been so good to you. This is the commitment he's made to you. Now you keep your commitment to him, right? Our whole theme is loving God supremely. We understand and we are able to love God supremely when we understand how much he loves us. That's his commitment to us, that he will never leave us. He'll never forsake us, that he will love us to the very end. He did that even with Judas. It says, you know, as he is washing their feet, it says, having loved them to the very end, he washed their feet. Jesus loved even Judas to the very end. He will love you to the very end, but don't fail in your commitment to him. Love him supremely. He is worthy of it. He's so faithful. He's so good. He says, while this was God's commitment to you that he gave you this land on the Transjordan side, you have also made a commitment to him. God has given us so many precious promises in his word and he's committed to fulfilling every one of them. It's who he is and he never changes. But you know, we have also made commitments to him. Now, some of those are general. What's the song we sing? You know, I've decided to follow Jesus, right? I mean, that's a commitment when you sing that. There are things that we'd sang tonight that are commitment songs, right? My heart and my soul, I give you control, right? Consume me from the inside out. Like those are not just pretty words. I hope not. You know, I hope as we're singing them that in your heart, you're thinking, Lord, that's me. Everything, nothing held back. Heart, soul, everything. My will, my intellect, my emotions, this body, whatever you want to do, Lord, I give it to you completely. The problem is it's easy to kind of go out the door and then when somebody cuts you off to be like my heart and my soul, no, my, I'm going to give my what for to that guy, right? Moses says, guys, don't forget your commitments to him. Some of the commitments we make are general, that idea of that general commitment to the Lord, but some of them are more personal. Maybe God asked you to serve him in an area and you made a commitment to him, you know, or maybe your vows to your spouse. I mean, that's not something God forced you to do, right? 
nobody forced me to marry my wife. You know, I did that at my own free will. It's funny when at my weddings, I don't ever do like the whole thing. If anybody here would, you know, object to this wedding, speak now, hold your peace. I, I'm thinking you waited too long already if you're waiting to this point. But you know, one of the things that's important to me, because I don't want to cast any doubt at that point, they're ready to say I do. They need to get, it's go time. But I do make them say certain vows to each other because it's a free will vow. And what I say in the wedding is you have, by an act of your, your will, you're saying, I want to do this. It's your choice. You can walk away from it right now. And it's really cool to see them not look at me, not look at you, the audience, but to look at one another. And they say their solemn vows to each other. They're choosing to do that. It's a commitment they've made. So whatever your commitments might be, whether they're general or very personal, are you honoring your commitments to the Lord? You need to. There's one final reminder that Moses needs to bring up before he kind of gets to chapter four. And it's that Joshua is now their leader instead of him. So verse 21, it says, And I commanded Joshua at that time, saying, Your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done unto these two kings. So shall the Lord do unto all the kingdoms whither you pass. You shall not fear them, for the Lord your God, he shall fight for you. Moses says, right after we defeated those Amorite kings, and right after we began to settle their land, he says, I pulled Joshua aside at that time, and I said to him, You have seen everything that God has done to these two kings, Joshua, the Lord's going to do the same exact thing to every kingdom you go up against. These battles were the last part of Moses leading the nation. It was his last campaign. So when they were complete, he began to turn the reins over to Joshua. Now, Moses was not perfect by any means, but he had been a great leader. Despite the nation's pride, stubbornness, wickedness, and even lack of love for him as, as their leader at times, he had successfully brought them to their destination, right? I mean, he did it. He did it. Not once, but twice he brought them to a destination. If Moses could hang in there with those folks and get the job done, then so can you and I, right? Let me ask you a question. Have you abdicated your responsibility to lead your wife? Or have you as parents abdicated your responsibility to lead your kids? Have you given up on them? They're too hard. Or have you abdicated responsibility in the area of your ministry that you lead? Maybe you've given up on your employees because they aren't cooperating perfectly. First off, good luck finding a group of sinners who cooperate perfectly. I've never found one. But second, your difficulties in leading anyone or any group of people have nothing on Moses. And Moses didn't abdicate. He didn't give up on them. And he didn't just say, well, whatever, I'm just here for the ride. I have no excuses to not succeed in my God-appointed task, and neither do you. How did Moses succeed in that task, though? Well, he died to self, right? I mean, that's where it all starts. It has to begin. I remember when Joel was first hitting teenage years. Joel is and is an amazing young man. But you know, 13 to 15 is not my fondest age period. Not because of anything particularly bad, but it's kind of that time when they're, they're still young and they do kind of childish things, but they're not old enough to really get it yet. And so they, they kind of make some meathead decisions sometimes where you're just kind of like, what are you thinking? And so that was a difficult time to try to figure out, like, how do I lead my son through this time so I can truly help him? Again, it was not a hard situation, but there were things that I was frustrated with at times. And I imagine I'll be there with every one of my kids. And then Beverly had me read a book called Age of Opportunity. I highly recommend it. If you have teenagers and you've not read it, you need to. But it talks about, you know, you know we oftentimes look at the teenage years as something to dread, something that we don't look forward to or like, or I don't want to deal with that. Like my old pastor, he said, we don't have any teenagers at this church. Teenagers are brats. He goes, you're just 12 plus one, 12 plus two, 12 plus three until you get to 20. But there's a bit of a defeatist attitude in that. In the sense of, as he started off this book, he was explaining, he goes, this is an awesome opportunity to minister to your child. And it flipped the script on me. Well, the second chapter, and after telling us what an opportunity is, he begins to deal with all the reasons why it's hard for you and why you don't see it as an opportunity. 
And man, it felt like he was just, somebody had put me up against the wall. And you know how they do like the knife thrower and they miss, barely miss? He wasn't missing. He was getting me right here every time. Over and over again, it was busting my pride, my need for self-respect, my demand for peace and quiet, my demand for things, all the things that were all me and had nothing to do with any of my kids. And I had to repent. I had to die to self if I was going to see it as the beautiful opportunity it was to have impact in my son's life. Moses did that. He died to self. He loved them unconditionally, no matter what. He stuck with them. Some of them died. Some of them continued and persisted and lost their lives because of their stubbornness and rebellion against God. But he loved them to the end. He served them, and he sure did pray for them a lot. And he kept them moving forward even when they dragged their feet. Living how Jesus wants us to live is to deny ourselves daily, just as he did. Moses lived in constant denial of self, putting others first, and making sure they were given the tools to succeed so that even when he was gone, the nation of Israel would continue walking with the Lord. This is how we ought to live. This is how we ought to love. As Christ gave himself up for us, we should do the same for others. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.